Hi, everybody. This is Mark. So, as you probably noticed, it's been a minute since our Civil War review dropped. We were supposed to have this latest episode ready more than two weeks ago, but as we've said before in the past, sometimes life intervenes. Among other things, Emily had to have emergency dental surgery about a month ago. Don't worry, I assure you she's fine. So that delayed this episode. Also, she's in the process of moving right now, so our Black Widow review, which we haven't even recorded yet, won't be dropping until late October at the earliest. But it will happen, I promise you. Thank you all so much for being so patient with us during these various delays. And so, without further ado, Emily and I bring you our countdown of our top five favorite MCU characters in its entirety. Enjoy! I was like, oh, I don't need to have our notes open, like our shared notes. I know how the intro goes. I don't know how the intro goes. <laughs> we can do this all day. Episode 16, top five MCU characters. Ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And, uh, wow, it's been a little while. I thought we would be a little rusty, but... Hopefully we will shake off that rust pretty soon because we have not done this in about, what, five or six weeks, Emily? I honestly actually don't remember how long it's been. It has been a minute since we recorded our Civil War episode. Uh, Emily was busy with stuff. I was busy with stuff. Life just kind of gets in the way sometimes. But we are now back. And as we often do after a long absence, so we can ease ourselves into things, we thought we would do another top five episode this week just to shake things up a bit. But first, MCU news. <laughs> So as of today, we are recording on fr- Ooh, we're recording on Friday the thirteenth. I hope that <laughs> doesn't mean anything. No technical glitches so far. As of today, the first episode of What If uh, has already dropped. We have both seen it. I really enjoyed it. I, I know Emily, you didn't think it was the your favorite thing in the MCU thus far, but it sounds like you still enjoyed it overall for the most part. Is that more or less accurate? It was interesting. I don't know why. Aside from Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, why cartoon superhero stuff doesn't speak to me the way it did when I was a kid, but Mm -hmm. I still liked it. I like the idea. Like, I like getting to explore a different universe, but, like, I could do that with fan fiction, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that doesn't require a Disney Plus subscription. (laughs) Marvel also confirmed that we will see the Hawkeye and Ms. Marvel shows on Disney Plus sometime before the end of the year. In fact, they confirmed that Hawkeye will be dropping on Wednesday, November 24th. So once What If ends in, I guess, like the middle of September, we will have a little bit of a gap. But it sounds like we're going to get paid back quite handily with two more shows before the end of the year to say nothing about... You know, Shang-Chi being in the theaters on September 3rd and Eternals dropping in November and Spider-Man No Way Home in December. So it's still going to be a very, very marvel fall. And what and day is Spider-Man No Way Home? It's close to an I, important day. I don't know. Uh, you don't know the date? I don't. Believe it or not, as I'm getting into my advanced age, I don't memorize these dates as much as I used to. Spider-Man. Man, no 
Spider-Man No Way Home. Spider-Man No Way Home is dropping on... Okay. <laughs> Spider-Man No Way Home drops on December 17th, which for those of you who have listened to our Civil War podcast or who had just have listened to us enough in the last year and know us well enough know that Emily's actual birthday is December 16th. In fact, it was December 16th, 1991, the day that Howard and Maria Stark were brutally murdered by the Winter Soldier. I just, you know, <laughs> wanted to make sure everybody knew when that movie was coming out. Heaven forbid they don't know after listening to our last episode. We only mentioned it about 17,000 times. But yes, Spider-Man No Way Home drops on December 17th, so Emily gets a late birthday present that week. You know what is unfortunate news that just came out this week that is not Marvel, but I'm going to shoehorn it in here anyway. Please tell me this is not about Venom. It is about Venom. Oh, for crying out loud. Venom Let There Be Carnage got pushed back again. Oh, heaven forbid. I'm big sad about it. When, when is the new release date? I don't know. I couldn't even look. But the, did they set one? I don't know. I didn't look. I was too upset to read the article. I didn't want oh, to. Well, here, well, oh, here I will. What's, oh, the, what's, no. the, what's, this, what's this movie called again? Venom. Let There, Let be, there Carnage. be Carnage. It's going to be so good and I need it, though. Because the original release date was, what, October 15th? Uh, nothing, in the, nothing in the Wikipedia article article about it being delayed i wonder it like just came out yesterday has been delayed again let's see what does the article say variety is reporting oh yeah oh yeah okay it was originally set to open september 24th now it's set to premiere on october 15th okay i thought it was originally october 15th and then got moved to something much later so october 15th it's only been delayed but a few weeks i think you can manage oh come on you're getting a freaking spider-man birthday the week of your birthday Spider-Man birthday the week of my birthday? You're just getting a... You're getting a Spider-Man movie the week of your birthday. <laughs> so you're going to sit here and complain to me because your silly Venom movie yes. has been delayed by three blasted weeks? Because my silly monster movie is getting delayed by three weeks. Yes. All right, I'm done. I just I wanted to shoehorn that in there because you know how much I love Venom. And I feel like I've gone a couple episodes without talking about it. So I'll allow that. All right, on to our main event for this evening. This week, Emily and I are each going to count down our top five characters in the MCU. They could be any characters at all, any of the MCU movies or TV shows. If it was an officially Marvel Studios-sanctioned film or TV show, it is fair game. And if you wanted to make it a character who only appeared for like five seconds in Ant-Man and the Wasp, you could do that. Is that I, is that I, some I foreshadowing? I guarantee neither of us are going to do that. I don't know exactly what Emily has picked, but I guarantee she's not going to do that. It was my intention for us to rank these so that number five was the least favorite of the five and number one the most favorite. I know, Emily, you don't always do that, but... Um, I ranked them. That? You did rank them this yeah. time? Okay, cool. Cool. Very cool. As always, we've kept our choices a secret from each other, although... I have the feeling, and I'm sure you longtime listeners will probably be able to figure out what, at the very least, what each of our number ones is. I'm reasonably sure I know what Emily's number one is. She's probably reasonably sure what my number one is, but who knows? Sometimes we have been known to surprise each other every once in a while, so. Oh, and I guess I should probably point out, spoiler alert for films that we have not discussed yet. I guarantee I'll be discussing at least one film that we have not yet talked about. I guess we'll do kind of a round-robin thing. Maybe what we'll do instead of me dropping the character and then going through my spiel or, or you know whoever dropping a character and going through their spiel let's each say who we picked for our whatever the number is and then uh i guess like emily can start with her diatribe <laughs> or whatever we want to call it so without further ado emily who do you have 
as your number five favorite MCU character. Like you said, to spoiler alert for movies that we haven't talked about yet, also spoiler alert for stuff that has recently come out, like this year, because I have some people on this list that are brand new. Me too. Just as a heads up. Okay. Me too. Yes. You Just have a, all a big the... flashing spoiler alert ahead yeah. sign. You have all been warned. So without further ado, who is your number five? My number five is Carly Morgenthau. Ooh, from Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Interesting. Wow. No kidding. That is very recent. My number five is Okoye. All right. From from Wakanda, as played by Denai Gurira. Why don't you start by talking about Carly? I was not I was not expecting you to pick someone from one of the shows, so this should be really interesting. Take it away, Emily. Yeah, I mean, first, I think, like, just to talk about the actress, I think that Erin Kellyman is just strikingly beautiful. She has just such a distinct look. Seeing her in Solo, seeing her in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it's just like, wow, you cannot forget her in those shows. And then going to the character, I really like the character of Carly because I feel like I can relate to her sort of now, but like more so when I was in college. Like, especially in college, I was super passionate about a couple of very specific things and did not care what other people thought and thought that I was right 100% of the time about those things and was so angry that other people didn't see it the same way. And so I felt like a really good connection to her that even though I didn't agree with, you know, there's no reason to ever kill somebody. But like, I can understand where that passion came from and why she thought that, you know, that's the only way people are going to listen is if I kill John Walker, this Captain America guy. That's the only way people are going to listen. And clearly we find out that that's not the case, that people will listen in different ways. But I really liked seeing a younger character because I feel like all of the other characters in the MCU, whether they're the anti-hero or the hero or the protagonist or the antagonist, they don't feel young. Even though Steve was supposed to have been in his mid-20s, he felt older. Right. Like he felt Mm -hmm. like he was in his 30s or something. And seeing another character that had such a deep story but was also younger and felt younger and not like too young but felt I don't know like more age accessible to me like I keep doing the sign for like the ASL sign for same Mm -hmm. like I can feel more connected to her because I feel more connected to who I was you know just five or six years ago and those feelings that I had and seeing her feelings and I liked too that you could see that she wasn't just a baddie like it was more complicated than that and I liked that they gave a female that role you know because it's Marvel like you're not always guaranteed to have like complex women in your stories and so Mm -hmm. to have that in a young character a young non-white character especially I thought that was really special so that's why she's my number five. I mean, I've loved all of the Disney Plus shows that Marvel has done so far. Falcon and the Winter Soldier, my favorite, understandably, mostly because of the ties to Steve Rogers and so forth. But it, the political intrigue, uh, those sort of action-oriented stories are the, the types of Marvel story to which I gravitate the most. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier particularly resonated with me just because of the types of stories they were trying to tell. Although occasionally it was a little clunky, I appreciated the timeliness of the story. You know, they were trying to touch a upon some pretty relevant issues with regard to racism, with regard to groups of people who are being overlooked in our society. And I thought she was a very good way, she was a good representative of that, the character, because a lot of social movements that we see nowadays 
are very heavily driven by young people. You know, I'm 48. You're about 20 years younger than I am. And I see a lot of people your age out there. They're the ones doing all the protesting. They were the ones out there in the streets after George Floyd was murdered. They were the ones taking action and actually going out there and trying to do something. And that's not to say that other people aren't. But from my own experience, that's what I see. I see younger people. And yes, Erin Kellyman, there's something about the look on her face every time you see here. There's a sort of determination. It's kind of like determination and desperation all rolled up into one. And I imagine that's basically who the character is in a lot of ways. She's, you know, upset and scared and angry and determined to do something about it. I think Erin Kellyman carries that off beautifully. You know, obviously she does some pretty bad things. She kills a lot of people. She blows up a building full of innocent people. And I know she feels desperate because she feels this is the only way that she can draw attention to the cause and maybe do something to harm the enemy, as it were, as she sees it. You see a lot of pain in her eyes and the face or just the way that she kind of carries herself. And she ends up being a tragic figure in that show. And of course, she ultimately ends up that way. All right, uh, I guess it's over to me. My, my first couple of choices, a lot of it's going to be sort of very descriptive and just sort of things and characteristics I like about these characters. Uh, I picked Okoye, played by Denai Gurira, who we first meet in Black Panther. She's a general, the head of the Dora Milaje, the king's personal guard. I, one of the reasons I like her so much, she's arguably the most straight-laced, no-nonsense, by-the-book hero in the MCU. We're kind of used to seeing a lot of these comical characters or characters who have kind of quir quirky personalities and joke a lot. She's much more stoic, and she's kind of the proverbial straight man, as it were. In Black Panther, when T'Challa goes down to rescue Nakia, and he does, in fact, freeze when he sees her, as Okoye was afraid he would do. Okoye is the one who goes in there and gets him out of trouble. Also in Black Panther, on the mission to Busan, you know, when you see her complaining about the wig, this is this totally impractical thing that she's got on her head. She beats up a ton of guys with just the staff, and the wig too, for that matter. We see her riding around on top of the car, and we know she wants to spear Agent Ross to his desk when he touches T'Challa when they're in interrogating Claw. She's just kind of a all business all the time, and I don't think you see a whole lot of that in the MCU. She's fiercely loyal to Wakanda and to the king. You know, she voices disagreement over T'Challa's decision to bring the wounded Agent Ross, who's you know, an intelligence agent of a foreign government, back to Wakanda instead of pursuing Ulysses' claw. So she's got this very kind of cold, logical calculus. She has this almost hawkish kind of protective impulse, you know, a mistrust of outsiders. When Killmonger appears to kill T'Challa, Koye feels compelled to continue to serve Killmonger since he is, according to tradition, he is now the king. And she's very kind of duty-bound and honor-bound to follow the traditions of her people. But ultimately, Killmonger's ascendance to the throne, ironically, is what also compels her to question that loyalty to tradition, and it ultimately leads her to oppose him. And despite her hard edge, there's some warmth and some humor in there, albeit it's a little subtle. Wakabi's rhino refusing to charge her and licking her on the face during that final battle in Infinity War when the Avengers land. And she makes the comment about, this is not what I had in mind, you know, when you said you were going to open Wakanda to the world. And T'Challa's like, well, what, were you, what did you have in mind? And she said, the Olympics, maybe a Starbucks. She definitely has a sense of humor, but it's very subtle. She's kind of like an older sister to T'Challa. I mean, she's unswervingly loyal to him, and yet also one of the few people who can speak to him with complete honesty, despite the fact that he's the king. And so there's just something about her stoicism and the fact that she's a straight-laced person who, over the course of their development, kind of 
finds some flexibility. I think she's a really, really good example of that. Plus, it's just fun as hell to watch her fight. <laughs> I love watching Denai Guerrero uh, beat people up with that spear. Well, all you Walking Dead fans out there used to her, used to watching her, uh, you know, lob zombie heads off with a samurai sword she's pretty good with a staff too well and i thought it was interesting that you said like her dedication to tradition when i think it is more like a dedication to like maybe the idea of wakanda because when she's fighting on the opposite side of wakabi and she has her spear to him and he's like would you really do this to me and she said for wakanda always and so i think the idea is like the ideals and what the purpose of wakanda instead of just the traditions of wakanda because she is able to break away from that right and so i always liked that it wasn't necessarily that she was going to serve killmonger just because that's what was expected but that she like thought critically about it and then was mm-hmm. like all right the future of wakanda is more important than the past of traditions essentially yeah and that's not to say that she just kind of fell lockstep oh he's in charge i guess i gotta follow him i mean when she's talking to you know nakia and uh, shuri and queen ramonda after killmonger has appeared to have killed t'challa she can tell she's very conflicted he is the king you know it's my job to serve the king but it's kind of in an undertone of you know what the heck do i do i don't i don't like this guy but he's the king this is my job it's not something that she does you know oh yeah he's in charge i better follow him she ultimately comes around Sort of a variation of the hero's journey, I think. On to our number fours. I'll go first with my number four. My number four, which may come as a bit of a surprise, is Yelena Belova from Black Widow. Oh. Were you surprised? Sort of. I'm interested to see what you have to say. I'm going to give myself away. You've seen Black Widow. No, yeah, but she's on my list. She's just not number four. Ooh, 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 wow. So I want to see what you you have to say and why you like her. Who's your number four? I'm sorry, who's your number four? Okay, my number four is Clint Barton. I kind of expect. Which should come as no surprise. It comes as very little surprise. So, all right. Yelena, honestly, I would have ranked her higher, if not for the fact that she's only been in one movie that just came out and I feel like I am a little old school in terms of you know paying your dues so in good conscience I couldn't rank her any higher than maybe four because I think she still needs to do a little bit more to really earn like a top three spot but having said that for a character that's only been in one movie and a movie that came out what a little over a month ago on our timeline it's kind of a big deal I love her we're so happy that after the innumerable delays that we finally get to see Black Widow uh, Emily and I both watched it on Disney Plus shortly after it came out it is clearly Scarlet Johansson's movie and she carries that movie very well but my god Florence Pugh steals every scene that she is in as far as I'm concerned again this is a huge spoiler for those of you who have not yet seen Black Widow uh Yelena Belova she's the adopted younger adopted sister of Natasha Romanoff also trained in the Red Room to be an assassin she's deadly she is lethal she is a capable badass, and she's at least as good as Natasha, perhaps even more so. In some ways, she's almost more efficient than Natasha is. In addition to being a badass, she's also a smartass. She she's sports, so funny. She is so saucy. She's got so many sarcastic, cheeky comebacks. She complains about Natasha's plan to escape Budapest. She razzes on her about the, the, po- the fighting poses, how ridiculous she thinks it is. She and Natasha have this weird love-hate relationship. Again, I have to defer to you, since I don't have an older sister, I have a younger sister, and, you know, I'm not her sister, so perhaps this sort of relationship is typical of sisters. You know, I'm sure we'll get more from Emily on that in a bit. Yelena is 
she's clearly resentful that Natasha was out gallivanting with the Avengers while she was still brainwashed. Resentful that Nat never came back for her. But despite that, Yelena clearly loves and respects and has missed Natasha all these years. Yelena's not as far removed from the Red Room as Natasha is, clearly. So it's kind of interesting to see sort of how she reacts to the world as a result of having been liberated from the Red Room so recently. The vest, she really, she's so in love with that vest. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, wow, look at it. It's like this, this new toy, this new thing. This thing is so cool. This thing is so cool. All these pockets where you can put all this stuff. It was, there was something so fun about watching her be in love with this vest. It was like giving a kid a new toy. And she's like, oh, you got pockets. You can put stuff in it. There was just something really adorable about that. We take something like that for granted. But for her, it's like, wow, this is a big deal. This is so neat. I think another funny thing about her having been liberated from the Red Room very recently, she accepts the possibility of death kind of casually. When they're liberating Alexi, the avalanche is about to come down on the prison and she's like that would be a cool way to die <laughs> there's something just kind of funny about that for all of her badassery as much as I love all the, the quips and the action stuff where I think Florence Pugh really shines as Yelena she has this incredible vulnerability where her family in air quotes is concerned the dinner scene in Black Widow while Natasha's going around talking about how you know the family was not real and Alexi is complaining about how you know had to put up this front and do this mission and, and and Melina's kind of doing the same thing and they're just sort of you know talking about how yeah this was a sham and oh, it was a mission and all that and meanwhile you look at Yelena sitting over there in the corner and she looks like a little girl again she kind of shrinks back and her eyes just kind of get really big she looks like she's gonna cry she's really upset by all of this because the rest of them may not have thought this was particularly real but you know she was very young this was very real to her she says to Alexei and Melina that you, you were my real mother and father. Losing them after they escaped from Ohio was really traumatic for her. I think Florence Pugh did a great job of showing that. It was such a wonderful contrast to all of the beating people up and all the fights and all the kind of smart alecky remarks to Natasha to see that that vulnerability. I mean, guys, she just she was her, she's hurting so bad from all of this. The quote that I take away from that, the best part of my life was fake and none of you told me. Yeah, it just breaks your heart. I love this character. I absolutely love this character. And who knows, we may redo these lists at some point in time. She may end up a lot higher on my list than number four. Cannot wait to see her in Hawkeye and in anything else that she ends up in in the MCU. I think she's got a long, fruitful future ahead of her. All right, so my number four is Clint Barton, played by Jeremy Renner. And I was thinking about this earlier because I didn't really write anything down. I wrote some stuff down, but for the most part, I'm sort of going off by the seat of my pants here. Honestly, what I like about Clint Barton is that there's just enough of him in the series, in the like MCU universe so far. There's just enough of him that you can develop a pretty strong sense of who he's supposed to be. But because he's not one of the main characters and so far he doesn't have a movie or a show or anything. And granted, you have the comics and like a lot of what I like about him actually is characterizations that I see from the comics. But I think what I like about having a sort of firm foundation in the movies is that when you go and read Fan fiction, for instance, like I read a lot of fan fiction and one of my favorite characters to read is Clint Barton because once you nail that characterization that fits him in the movies or from the comics, anytime you read new fan fiction from a different author, it doesn't feel like they're doing it wrong. 
like they're doing Clint the wrong way because he's so such a firm character in the movies that it's very easy to write off that as a writer and characterize him super well. And so I always really liked that. And I like to like Jeremy Renner in a lot of the movies that you see him in, he's this like everyman, hardworking guy. And I like that Clint has that too. Clearly that's like who he's meant to be. He's just a hardworking sort of blue collar dude. He's not meant to be a superhero, but here he is. Almost on accident, he sort of falls into this. And of course, you know, like I do like that he has a family in the movies. I am very interested to see, because he's in New York during Hawkeye, it seems. You know, he's definitely not on the farm with his wife, clearly. (laughs) So I'm interested to see what sort of more characterization we get from that and sort of what that does with the sort of outer universe of like fan fiction and writing and art and things like that. You know, is it going to be more like Fraction Clint or is it going to be more what we've already seen in the MCU? Like I've been waiting for so long, I feel like to get a Clint Barton specific content because like we were gypped in the first Avengers movie. At least that's my understanding is that he was supposed to have more to do. And so knowing now that we get more and I wouldn't be surprised from frankly, because there are so many good fan fiction writers, if their characterization of him outside of what we've been given is correct. Like, because I do think that the foundation is firm enough that what we'll see in Hawkeye is going to be pretty close to in character. I think I put him on this list and I put him where he is because, again, like, I like what I read and what I read feels so connected to the universe already. And I'm also excited to see what more can get added. You talk about Clint the everyman, Clint the blue collar kind of guy. If you had to distill the essence of Clint Barton in the MCU down to a sentence or two, would that be a part of it? Or would you would you add something else? Would you nuance it a bit? One of the cool things about Clint is we do get to see lots of different sides to him, despite the fact that he has, you know, compared to the heavy hitters like Thor and Tony and all that, comparatively much less to do, but he does make the most out of it. If you wanted to distill him down to like one or two sentences, what would it be? I don't really know if I could do that, but the fact that he obviously is very skilled. He's an everyman, blue collar kind of guy, but has this amazing skill set. And I think also that amazing skill set because he's not super powered, he's not rich, he's not serumed up or anything like that, just comes from like plain hard work. He's gotten everything that he has just from like working really hard. (laughs) I find that admirable in a character, you know, much less in a regular person, being able to work really hard to get to where you're going. I think I like Clint because he represents kind of the the more cynical side, the non-believer, the most grounded person. He and Natasha are the only two who don't have any superhuman abilities, but they're, they're both very good at their jobs and very good combatants. And obviously he's an incredible marksman, but their abilities are, you know, on a different scale from Hulk or Thor or even Cap and Iron Man. So they kind of have a way of seeing the world from the ground level, literally and figuratively. And Clint really represents that the best. I keep going back to him in Civil War. I mean, for some reason, there's just some Something about him in Civil War that's kind of like, all right, you know, look, like, hey, I was retired, but, you know, everything kind of went to hell, so I had to come out here and fix stuff. And it's just a very, kind of like you said, it's like he's just kind of like getting up and going to work. And, well, you know, I'm supposed to be water skiing with my kids, but Cap needs me, so I got to go out there. And, and I also think, too, you know, the conversation with Wanda in Age of Ultron that we talked about, he recognizes the ridiculousness of most of the situations that they end up in as Avengers. The city's flying and, you know, we're being attacked by all these flying robots and, you know, I've got a bow and arrow. He, he's fully cognizant of the fact that this is nuts what he's doing, but he goes out and does it anyway because that's his job and because he knows it's the right thing to do. There's a very grounded everyman quality to him that you can't really find on any other member of that team, not even Natasha. 
All right, on to number three. Emily, who do you have at number three? My number three is Yelena. So number three. Oh, so you're only one removed from mine. Okay. My number three is Drax the Destroyer. Oh, yeah. That doesn't surprise me, actually. <laughs> from, from Guardians of the Galaxy. Do you want to go ahead and go first with Yelena before we get too far removed from my treatise on her? Yeah. Go for it. Firstly, I do really like the humor. I love the poser stuff. I thought that was so funny. Why do you do that? That And she's like trying to get down into it. And then later on in the movie when she does do it and she's like, ew. Ugh, ew. <laughs> <laughs> like, ugh. But like, so there's that sort of on the surface level of how funny she is. But then like you mentioned about siblings is like there is something I think so special and maybe I'm biased, but... There's something so special about a sister-sister relationship that I think is different from, like, a brother-sister or even from, like, a brother-brother relationship. There's this sort of common understanding that you reach, I think, at a certain point between two sisters. And I don't know if it's, like, always been that way or if it's, like, sort of how we perceive it in our culture or it's, like, there's always something about having a sister in a family. I was thinking, again, what you said about Elena because she was so young. Like, she was so, so young when they were in Ohio. And there's something about talking to my sister now, who's five years older, so probably a similar distance, like, age difference away. My sister, even at, you know, eight, nine, ten, knew things about how the family worked and how things were because she was an older sister that I just never realized. And so I can 100% imagine that even though we are not the Romanoff family over here, that there could be a, <laughs> there could be a time where... Me and my sister would be having dinner with my parents and they would have a conversation like that and I'd be like, what? No, like this was real. And they'll be like, no, it wasn't. I could imagine that uh -huh. conversation happening just because of the age difference. And then there is something about having another older girl protecting you because Natasha mm -hmm. clearly was and still is trying to protect her that you miss so much because of that protection. I don't know if this is making sense to anybody. If you have a sister, you probably get it. But if you don't, you're probably like, what is this? But this movie was such a good chance to see two female characters in such a special relationship that's different from being friends it's different from being in a romantic relationship there's just something about having a sister <laughs> when you're a sister that's just so special I saw it almost got me but I saw a tumblr post that had like gift sets from the movie and spoiler alert and it was talking about when Natasha's dead at the end of Black Widow, technically the end of Endgame. And it says, like, when you're a child and you lose your parents, you're an orphan. When you lose your spouse, you're a widow. Like, what is it when you lose a sibling? Like, what is it when you lose a sister? Mm -hmm. To see that pain in that cutscene, to know what we know, that it wasn't the person who it is, it wasn't his fault. But I 100%, if my sister was dead and someone came up and said, I know who it was, I wouldn't question it. I would 100% be on board immediately, no matter what. And go and try to kill that person. Yeah. I have people in my life that I would do that for, but like not to the degree that I would absolutely destroy that person if anything happened to my sister. Like it's such a particular relationship and the way that they portrayed it, I hope <laughs> either they're very very good writers or someone in that writing room is a sister and has like has a sister because it's such a special relationship that I think they captured really well and that made me love Yelena even more because it was so well captured and so well portrayed. I'm guessing you know as I said I'm an older brother to my younger sister so I'm neither of us is ever going to understand that kind of relationship. If I were to sort of think about it what probably makes it special it's not just that two sisters are siblings although that's obviously a part of it but they're women 
girls, not just sisters, it's two sisters. Because let's face it, the salty language alert, salty language alert. Women have to go through so much shit. It's like that song, you know, sisters looking out for each other. And so I think that's why uh, the sister-sister bond is probably particularly strong because they really have to look out for each other. Well, and you can they've already got so many things going against them just being women. Well, and I it imagine. even comes in from like from your own family too. What happens to women is internalized and done by other women, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because of society and because of culture and because it's so deep seated in everybody's culture. That stuff your relationship with your parents also like siblings obviously can band together against their parents but the understanding that two sisters have of their parents that like because you can see it in the way that like Natasha wants to protect Yelena but you can also see that like the two of them have their own secrets you know like when when kids team up against their parents but like the experience that a son has with their mom or with their dad is going to be totally different than what a daughter has. And especially an older daughter, like an older daughter that has to play the role of doing all the things mm-hmm. that a traditionally an oldest daughter does while also like having to also play in that role of the boy, like the son, because you still have to, you know, and Alexi is like, there must be so much red in your ledger. Like it must be gushing. And he's like super proud. And she's like, uh, yeah. you know, she's like unhappy about it. She probably also was thinking of Yelena. And, like, not wanting Yelena to have all that. And so there's something very particular about that relationship because of society and because of what's Mm -hmm. expected of you. It all comes in together into this one particular relationship. I also like that whenever you see TV shows where they have siblings and, like, I've apologized to my sister before about things. But usually it's, like, it's not necessary that you apologize after something happens. is that you just move on. You Mm -hmm. come to the room with some sort of, like, weird truce. You know, I got this candy that you liked instead of saying I'm sorry. Uh Here's this gift. I got it for you. Let's never talk about this again. And I I feel like they did that a couple of times in the movie where there was this space to apologize. But because you know each other so well... You already know that that apology is there. Like it doesn't need to be said. Natasha saying, "Yeah, I think the vest is cool." Yeah, was kind of like was kind of like one of those. It's like Yelena wanted Yelena wanted. She was just so in love with the vest, and I think it meant so much to Yelena that her big sister also thought that the vest was cool. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Even even if she's just saying it kind of a yeah, I think the vest is cool. Because then you know, as soon as she does. Yelena's like, yes, this is yes, so cool. You know, there was just something about that moment that was, was really heartwarming. Yeah. But I mean, I could, I honestly could talk about that relationship forever. And I guess I'll get more of an opportunity to talk about that in the movie review. But I really like Yelena. And I'm glad that we got to see two women sort of headlining a movie, two sisters. It took a long time, it took longer than it should have, but we finally got to see it. I'm very glad about that too. My number three, Drax. Drax the Destroyer, played by Dave Bautista. There are times when I think that Marvel's insistence on infusing all of their projects with comedy can sometimes get a little stale, but in the case of Drax, I think it works exceptionally well. In the comics, Drax is a pretty hes a pretty serious, straight-laced kind of guy. When we first meet him in the movies, in Guardians, he's pretty serious. But then the folks at Marvel and James Gunn and presumably Dave 
Dave Bautista himself, they found this way to turn him into a funny character because he's so serious. That literal-mindedness becomes a source of comedy in the films, and Bautista plays that, I think, just brilliantly, starting with that whole, you know, nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. <laughs> he just delivers it so deadpan, and yet it's so funny. That's why it works, and he does that a lot in these movies. We discover his sensitivity in the first Guardians movie, you know, his admission that the anger and the rage that he was fronting earlier was kind of just his way of masking the pain and the grief at having lost his wife and daughter to Ronan and Thanos. He clearly and very vocally embraces this group as his friends by the end of the movie. The scene with him and Rocket after they've crashed on Xandar and Groot is gone and Rocket is devastated. Drax comforts him. There's a great sensitivity to this otherwise kind of big hulking guy. I think he really grows in Guardians 2, which I can't talk too much about because Emily hasn't seen it yet. And we're not going to be reviewing it until a little bit later this fall. So I'll, I'll say a few things, which may fly over your head, Emily, but the fans who have seen it will understand, I hope. I mean, you can. You know I don't care about spoilers, so. You don't care about spoilers. He's got so many one-liners in that movie that I think are just hilarious. Does that deep laugh a lot. <laughs> I have famously huge turds. <laughs> it's just the, the scene on Ego's ship, the, that conversation where Mantis is revealing that people Peter has these feelings for Gamora and just completely oblivious to social norms and discretion. He just kind of blurts out, ha, ha, ha. she just revealed your deepest, darkest secret. You must be so embarrassed. It's so funny seeing him just be so ridiculously socially awkward. Speaking of Mantis, he forms this just really weird relationship with her in that movie that's it's funny and it's incredibly awkward, but it also brings out a lot of really poignant moments for Drax and continues to show his sensitivity. He thinks she's ugly, and he makes no bones about that, but he still cares about her, and there's something really refreshingly honest about that, I suppose. By the end of this movie, he also acknowledges that the Guardians are no longer just friends, but they're family as well. That relationship with the rest of the Guardians gets taken another step further in that movie. And of course, I think he's an absolute riot in Infinity War. I could just rattle off lines from that movie that I think are stupidly funny. The whole bit with Thor, no, he is not a dude. You're a dude. He's a man. This is a man. A handsome, muscular man. It's like a pirate had a baby with an angel. <laughs> Every time he says that stuff, I just lose it. When Quill starts, you know, trying to stand up to Thor and deepens his voice, they, you were imitating the god man. It's weird. I have mastered the ability of standing so incredibly still that I become invisible to the eye. Everything out of his, out of his mouth in that movie is just funny. And Abe Bautista has just, he's found the way to deliver the comedy in this masterful deadpan manner. He'll be in Thor Love and Thunder next year with the rest of the Guardians. It's going to be interesting. We always comment about how Civil War was like Avengers 2.5. Well, Thor Love and Thunder is starting to turn into Guardians 2.5. Of course, he'll be in Guardians Volume 3 the following year, but then uh, Dave Bautista says that he's going to retire the character, which is kind of sad, but he says he's getting too old to do the job. He says he's too old to do all the shirtless stuff. I don't think so, but he does. It's his character. Uh, he would know. That's my number three, Drax. So we're closing in on the big ones, and uh, I guarantee I'm going to have a lot to say about these last two, so hopefully it'll be well worth it. Are we ready for our number twos, Emily? Yeah, I think so. All right. Mine are probably not going to come as 
any surprise to you whatsoever. My number two, of course, is the Master of the Mystic Arts, Dr. Stephen Strange. I knew he'd be up there. I actually kind of thought he'd be number one. You know, looking back now, given how much I wrote about him compared to how much I wrote about my number one, who I still wrote a lot about, I could very easily have switched them. But, well, we'll see. Dr. Strange is my number two. Who's yours? I think he will be at least slightly surprised. It's Peter Parker. No. Oh, okay. I, I kind of expected him on the countdown. I may not have expected him quite that high up. I would have expected, like, um, Clint at number two. And maybe, and I maybe do Peter, really like, like Clint Barton a lot. <laughs> I figured Peter was going to show up on there, but I didn't realize that high. I'll start. Dr. Stephen Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, I know you have not seen all of Doctor Strange. We'll be reviewing that one also later this year. I'm very much looking forward to that. Talk about rewatchability. I watched the whole thing again today. I love, love, love that movie. Despite the problems caused by Tilda Swinton's casting, and you know, we are not going to shy away from that when we do our review of that movie. We will address that. Setting that aside, I love Doctor Strange. And I talked about that actually in our top five scenes, our top five moments. I talked about that a lot. A lot of folks balk at Stephen Strange in the MCU because they think he's a Tony Stark knockoff. And I don't think that's fair. Yeah, they're, they're both reasonably wealthy, extremely gifted, self-centered jerks who are hard to love and had to turn their lives around after catastrophic injury and trauma. But I think the comparisons more or less end there. As much as Tony is all of those things, I argue that Stephen Strange's journey is more compelling because he had further to travel, I think, in going from a grade-A jerk to a hero. Tony was absolutely full of himself, no question about that. But I think more so than Tony, Strange genuinely thought he was better than than most people. Uh, when he's recuperating from the injury, he calls the physical therapist, all right, Mr. Bachelor's degree, and he kind of says it with this dripping disdain. I mean, there was nothing funny about that comment at all. It was meant as an insult. When Christine Palmer tells him what they initially did to him after he's waking up, you know, she's like, hey, nobody could have done better. And he responds, you know, I could have done better. Although Strange's injuries were not life-threatening, I mean, they were truly life-altering. In some ways, I think more so than Tony's injury was. Because, like, once the magnet gets attached to his chest, Tony's able to function more or less normally for up through Iron Man 3 when he finally gets it taken out. Strange spent a ton of time and money and resources on surgeries and alternative therapies and all that stuff before he finally made his way to Camartage as a last resort. We spent a, a significant amount of the movie watching this journey of Strange's, including, you know, seeing him hit rock bottom, being at his absolute lowest point, you know, where he's so full of despair and self-pity that he's even chased away, he's even pushed away Christine, like the only person left on Earth who even remotely cares about him in a genuine sense. They're really the only friend he's got left, and he pushes her away. And he's he's so desperate with that we see him, a great skeptic about many things, embrace sorcery to solve his problem. And in doing so, he realizes that there's much much more out there at stake than just him and his ego and his reputation. You know, he realizes that he is in a position to do something about it. Although it's always been alluded to, the fact that Howard was a lousy father and a lousy father figure, I never felt like we got a really good sense in all of his appearances in the MCU for why exactly Tony Stark is the way that he is. I think we get a much better insight into Strange's psyche and what makes him tick in Doctor Strange. That final conversation 
between him and the Ancient One in the hospital before she, spoiler alert, before she passes. It's one of the most beautiful scenes in the movie. I think it's one of the most poignant scenes in all of the MCU. Because it's, it's a strange's soul is just kind of laid bare there. And I think it's one of the reasons why I love this movie so much. Because, frankly, I can identify with more of what they have to say to each other than perhaps I would otherwise care to admit. You know, the Ancient One tells him that he's incredibly gifted and incredibly talented and he has this crazy potential to do an unparalleled amount of good, but that he's not used those gifts in a search for success. He's used them instead out of a fear of failure. And that fear of failure is what has kept him from true greatness. She tells him that his arrogance and his fear have blinded him from learning the most important lesson of all. And to quote her, it's not about you. That's the lesson that he hasn't been able to learn. And there's just such a level of complexity to the character that I find really engrossing and engaging. I love Benedict Cumberbatch as Stephen Strange. I love the performance. This is the movie that made me like Benedict Cumberbatch. Because I think I've told you before, I never liked him before this. He plays Strange kind of not with this, you know, flippant, smartassery of a Robert Downey Jr., but it's a much darker, truly self-absorbed, kind of sneering bitterness early on in the movie. You kind of expect someone who makes weapons for a living to be an unpleasant person, but, you know, Strange is a physician, and it is, or was his job, to save lives and to do no harm. And so for him to be such an arrogant person in that case is just I think particularly jarring and particularly unbecoming and so in some ways I think Strange is almost worse than Tony but at the same time I think that's what makes his turnaround that much more poignant and that much more impressive so there my number two Doctor Strange. I do like what I have seen of Doctor Strange like I did think the movie from a personal development side was really interesting like I didn't really find the plot from what I remember this was years and years ago I don't remember finding the plot super compelling or the story, but I remember being interested in seeing a very aggressively arrogant person be humbled Mm -hmm. in a way that like really sucked, but also was like, ah, finally, you just needed to be knocked down a few pegs, a lot Uh of pegs, and then redirected. And so I did really like that. I do really like that even though he and Tony don't get along at all in Infinity War, I like that the two most arrogant people in the MCU both still understand that this is bigger than them. And I always thought that was interesting. And I always really liked in Endgame when Tony is like, is this the one? Like, you got to tell me if this is the one timeline that it works. And he's like, I can't tell you. And it's like, oh, but you know... Mm-hmm. You know that was a really good moment in that movie and in those two characters. If anybody else thinks that they are the most important character, it's those two. What happens when you have two alpha dogs in the same room? Yeah, I always really liked that interaction in particular. I thought that sort of spoke well of both of their growth, like the two of them. Again, <laughs> spoiler alert, huge spoiler alert. At the end of Endgame at Tony's memorial service there at the house, when they go through that long pan where they start at the front with Pepper and Morgan start working their way down through all the Marvel heroes. When you get to Strange, he's immovable. He's just standing there, ramrod straight, doesn't move a muscle. He's got this stone cold look on his face that's just, to me, he knew all along that this was going to happen. He couldn't say anything about it. I think that's kind of Strange's way of processing all of that, because it's kind of like, I did the job I had to do. I had to do that. We wouldn't have won without it, so I'm glad I did it. But at the same time, you can tell he hated it, and he didn't want Tony to die. It just kind of killed him. 
to have to sit on that for all that time and sort of see this all play out knowing that it was going to happen and have to keep his mouth shut about it and it's just kind of like he doesn't know what to do so he just kind of stands there stone-faced I don't know if that was in the script or if that was something that the Russo brothers did or if that was something Cumberbatch wanted to do but I, I love that moment as very subtle as it is and it's kind of like the ultimate sign of respect in a way but yeah you know we've talked about I love a redemption story and I just think that Strange's redemption story is particularly powerful because we really really see the depth that he has sunk to and then to see him come rise up from that and save the universe a couple of times in the course of you know the four movies that he's in I just really enjoyed that to say nothing about the movie itself and the plot and the, the way the magic is rendered and all that stuff and we'll talk about that when we talk about the movie later this year very much looking forward to seeing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness later this year apparently he's got a new look and it's so secret that no one is allowed to see it he did an interview uh, via Zoom or something like that a few months ago and he was in his trailer because they were on set filming in London and on Disney's orders what he did he had to have his the camera of his phone facing up at the ceiling because said Marvel will not let you see what I look like right now so it'll be interesting to see <laughs> what all the hubbub is about so anyway Doctor Strange is my number two and now with her number two choice favorite MCU character Emily Griswold minus Peter Parker played by Tom Holland for some reason I was going to say of course but I don't think I have said enough on the show to make Peter Parker being my number two and of course moment. Firstly, I really like Tom Holland. I like now that we are seeing him play a lot more like grown-up roles. When I saw him smoking in the trailer for Devil All the Time, I was like, no, he can't do that. He's baby. He's a baby child. He's not allowed to smoke. (laughs) But I was really worried after Homecoming. I did not think Homecoming was very good. And I was like, oh no. So we're just going to get another round of unfortunate Spider-Man movies that don't quite cut it. And I was a little worried about that. But then Far From Home was just so good for me and developed his character so well. Again, I think the similar thing with Carly is that I like seeing sort of younger characters get to develop and grow because all the other characters are Tony Stark and Steve and like, yeah, Steve is meant to be younger, but Steve's also 100 years old, you know, like, even though he hasn't experienced those 100 years, it feels like it. He's got the weight of it. And Peter Parker has the weight of a teenager, a regular teenager. And like, that's a lot of weight, but it's like relatable weight. I don't know. I really, really liked Far From Home. I know we're still still seeing Peter in relation to Tony mm-hmm. because Tony's the one who brought him in. But in Homecoming, he was so dependent on Tony to a fault that it sort of hampered his character development. And while Tony is still a big force in his life, like he was able to develop on his own. And I just love the characterization in Far From Home. I love how real and raw Peter was in that whole movie. Kid is just exhausted. Got back from being dusted, hit the ground running, and has not stopped. And you think like, oh, this vacation's gonna be so nice. And it's not, because <laughs> it turns uh-huh. out to be this terrible thing. But in particular, I really liked the scene of him when they're in the Netherlands after he's been like tossed around by Jake Gyllenhaal's character and he's got hit by the train and then he gets on the train and then wakes up in jail. Pretty much. Well, that's when he calls. Uh, when he calls happy, happy right? yeah. He calls happy to, and to so bail that, him out. That whole process of him like realizing for a moment and thinking for a moment that he's truly alone, and then knowing that he does have someone to fall back on. Because any other character, I think, in the MCU would have done it themselves. They would have been like, "I can do this." Everyone depends on me, like this sort of strong, stoic superhero stuff. 
But he knows that he has a support system and he knows that he can call happy. Mm-hmm. And I liked seeing that sort of vulnerability in a character where he can say like, look, man, I'm really in a bad spot. I'm in over my head. I help. am in way over my head. You have to help me. You know, and I don't think we would see that with any of the other main characters. And they wouldn't admit it so readily. But I like how open the Peter Parker character in the MCU is. Perfectly willing to admit like there's no bravado about it. Even in the fight in Civil War, like you'd think in that airport fight, he would have wanted to be like, oh, okay, I'm coming in. And I'm going to fight with these superheroes and I'm going to be really tough and I'm going to be strong. And there's none of that. Like he is still so much himself. Everything is out in the open. His heart's on his sleeve in everything that he does. And I always really liked that about him. And also I love Tom Holland. <laughs> I just think Tom Holland is, first of all, very cute. Second of all, like such a good actor. And to see him, like I've seen him in a bunch of other things now that he's done outside of Spider-Man mm-hmm. and outside of the MCU. And he's can play all these like such different roles. If you were to watch Peter Parker, Homecoming or Far From Home or any of the movies that he's in in the MCU and then watch like The Devil All the Time or watch Cherry, completely different people. I don't think there's a single ounce of Peter Parker in those characters. And you know how sometimes you can feel, you know, there's... Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah, like it's him. He's not it's, really it's... playing a character. He's not really he's playing, playing Tony. Himself. He's playing he's himself. One those, he's one of those actors who plays himself in every movie. Yeah. But I think Tom Holland can truly get in that other character and you don't see any of the other characters that he's Mm -hmm. been before you just see that one character and i think that's a really special quality to have i really did enjoy andrew garfield's oh me too he's one of my favorite performance in the last batch of spider-man movies in the amazing spider-man movies there's just something about tom holland he's so charismatic i know a lot of people a lot of comics fans who complain a lot though i don't like the fact that the mcu makes peter parker he's basically you know tony stark's Aaron boy and Tony Stark is bankrolling him and it's all Tony Stark, Tony Stark. He should be always on his own, you know, being kind of left to his own devices and always have to get out of his own jams by himself like he does in the comics. Okay, if you want to have that opinion, you can. For the sake of storytelling and dramatic license and whatever, the filmmakers felt they needed to make certain choices to make these films work and to make this Peter Parker fit in the MCU. And I'm completely on board with that. I didn't have a problem with any of that. I think one of the things they do particularly well that's also done in the comics, they made Peter Parker the right age. Peter Parker, you know, sort of you, when you think of the classic 60s, you know, Silver Age, Marvel Age, the, you know, the origins of Peter Parker, you think Peter Parker the teenager. On the one hand, having to fight the Sinister Six and Mysterio and the Green Goblin and all that, but he still has to hurry up and get home and get his history report done in time. You get that with Tom Holland's Peter Parker more than any of his predecessors. He plays that kind of frantic, oh, yeah, I still gotta, I still gotta do this, and you know, I, I gotta go save the world, but I also gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta physics test tomorrow too, and he carries that really well. You know, a lot of it is just he's a versatile actor, and he's very charismatic, and he plays that role really well. It certainly seems like they're planning an arc for Peter to slowly move him, evolve him out of Tony's shadow into his own hero. And I, I suspect that when we get to, you know, No Way Home, we're going to see that. That's just my guess, that we're finally going to see him evolve into his own hero. And we've seen, you know, bits and pieces of that already. And we saw a lot of it in that final fight with Quentin Beck. He has to take matters into his own hands and, you know, he's got to beat the villain his way. And he does it. And I think we're just kind of gradually see him sort of grow into that role and become his own hero. 
All right, so we are now down to our number ones, and Emily and I have known each other for a long time. We know each other well enough. Uh, I don't think this is any surprise to us at all who we picked. You as audience members, since a lot of you probably know us, this will not be any surprise to you either. So without further ado, Emily, <laughs> please go ahead and tell us that your number one is Bucky Barnes. It is. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I assume that you can go ahead and say that your number one is Steve Rogers? I can indeed. For a brief moment, I was thinking about faking you out and saying, like, you know, Malekith. <laughs> just to mess Thor. with your, just to mess with your head. Peter Quill. <laughs> so, Thanos. But no. So, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and talk about Bucky first? I mean, I might not actually talk that long because I feel like I have worn him to death almost. And I know that like I'll revive it when we cover Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I was thinking about it just now. And I think obviously he's meant to be this sort of opposite to Steve. And I don't want to say like an anti-hero because like isn't an anti-hero someone who is the hero, but you don't like him. I he's... suppose that's... I guess I was thinking of like... I suppose that's one day. Kind of like a James Dean kind of... Well, I was thinking like Tommy Shelby from Peaky Blinders because he is clearly the protagonist of the story, but also like does a lot of things you don't like. Hopefully all the Peaky Blinders fans out there get that reference. But I guess that's show, so. what I'm sort of trying to portray is that I think they intend for Bucky to be a hero kind of in his own right, but in juxtaposition to Steve. He's like the dark Steve, which I kind of like that Steve has a partner and Steve isn't this untouchable, perfect god of a human. That there's this other person who's also fallible and has problems and difficulties and challenges, but just didn't get the opportunity to be perfect shining star in the sky, Steve Rogers, you know? I just like that there's this realness to him that we got a little bit with Steve. We got to see that Steve was clearly hurt and clearly broken and traumatized by what happened to him, but he couldn't let that consume him. And I liked that at least once we finally got to Falcon and the Winter Soldier, we could see that it had consumed Bucky. And I liked being able to see that. What I really liked about Captain America the Winter Soldier is that it felt real. Like, it felt like it fit into the universe, but it felt real. The feelings were real, and the sort of darkness and the edginess were real. They weren't trying to gloss over it. They weren't trying to, like, make it pretty. They were like, this is how it is. And I liked that Falcon and the Winter Soldier had that, and especially, like, Bucky's character had that, that was like, this is how it is. Yeah, you got your pardon, but you have to go to therapy and like yeah you got your pardon but you have to repair all of this damage that you did when it wasn't even really you but like you have to go repair this damage because it was kind of you and that he was able to sort of work through that and like also got the kick in the pants from sam needed of you got to put in the work i just like seeing sort of a real raw look at the type of person that has the capability like the sort of everybody has talent but not everybody has opportunity right and steve and bucky you know grew up alongside each other comparatively from what we know bucky had a better life he wasn't getting sick all the time he didn't lose his mother he didn't lose his father all of those things but like steve did but steve was given this special opportunity and bucky was given it to him at a really really steep cost got the same thing but was given to it in such a terrible way and to see sort of how two people that grew up together had similar opportunities but the way their paths parted was so different and to see how they both dealt with that i also just really like a sad character like i don't know what it is but if you can just take a really pretty boy like sebastian stan and just make him real sad <laughs> make him big sad do whatever you have to do but then bring us back like he smiled 
and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. There were a couple smiles in there. Oh, there were a couple smiles. A lot of them in New Orleans. A he, lot of them he, in the, you know, he was joking with people. He was having a good time, and so it's, he was having a great time. Yeah. At, you know, in the with the with the Wilson family. That's sort of one of my favorite tropes, I guess, of character development is have like a really really sad, sort of grumpy, dark, angry cloud kind of character get dragged into the sunshine and be told, "I'm gonna make you happy if it kills me." <laughs> You know, like, (laughs) I just really like, you know, seeing characters like that. And I think Sebastian maybe is, well, I wouldn't say totally shoehorned into characters like that, but he does play a lot of darker characters or characters that sort of suffer more than like the average person would. I think because he does it so well, you know, sometimes there's a reason people get typecast. And I think it's because Sebastian is just really good at playing those roles. Bucky obviously means a lot to you. He doesn't mean quite as much to me but that doesn't mean that i don't have thoughts about him and his character and what he's been through you go to that moment in captain america the first avenger when they're at the stark expo bucky's all this handsome young gi and he's got the girl two girls as it were and they're kind of out off having fun and the scrawny little steve rogers is just kind of yeah, i really want to go off and join the fight you know buck's going off to fight and i'm still stuck here he's just like completely down on his luck and kind of very little is going his way and you know, Bucky's, he had certainly just sort of projects that air of him being on the up and up. It's, you know, you kind of get the sense this is how it's been for them all along. And once they part ways, once Bucky leaves for the front, it's like everything changes for both of them completely and their paths go in completely different directions. Steve gets the super soldier syrup. He's given, like you said, this incredible opportunity and he makes the most of it. He becomes a superhero. He does everything he wanted to do and more. And then the next time we see Bucky, he's strapped to a gurney he's been forcibly turned into a super soldier by the red skull he's a pow he's been dragged around and steve rescues him but you know as you alluded to almost a year ago when we did our review of captain america the first avenger you talked about how you know bucky's you know let's hear it for captain america it was not a particularly rousing kind of rah rah let's hear it for our side he sounded very tired and it was just kind of emblematic of suddenly you know here he is he's been through a bunch of stuff already and now he's kind of on the opposite end of being rescued and you know all of a sudden it's Steve he's looking up to and Steve is the one in charge and what happens to Bucky you know even though he gets rescued from the Red Skull he falls off a train loses an arm gets brainwashed murders hundreds of people including Iron Man's parents and he doesn't have a moment to process this even after he gets snapped out of it because you know the moment he gets snapped out of it Thanos (laughs) and then he gets dusted and so he's gone for five years and then he comes back and helps save the universe but then he's got to confront all this stuff like he does in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and it's kind of like you know we talk about Natasha getting the red out of her ledger now by the time we meet her she's been working on that for a while by the time we get to Falcon and the Winter Soldier it's like Bucky is just taking his first steps to trying to do that for himself and so he's at a very sort of awkward difficult part of that process because he's just getting started so he's definitely in a lot of ways a very a very sad character perhaps a tragic character but he shows a great potential to do an incredible amount of good and I think his story's clearly not done yet and I'm very curious to see how he carries on without Steve and with his full faculties starting to put his own life together and at the same time put the Winter Soldier behind him as much as he can. Anything else you wanted to add? No. I mean again like I said I think I've pretty well thoroughly beaten the horse of Bucky Barnes into the ground. (laughs) 
in all the would, past movies. I would expect no less of you, Emily. And I'm glad you did, because I like hearing this, because a lot of time you, you joke about him on Twitter, and we talk about him kind of obliquely. And while I always sort of kind of get what it is you gravitate towards with this character, it's always nice for me to hear kind of this thoughtful, I like hearing sort of this thoughtful exposition of, you know, exactly what it is about him that appeals to you. It's kind of nice for me to hear, too, frankly. Okay, so I do have, like, one more quick thing that I was just thinking about now while you were talking. I keep talking about a lot of characters in conjunction with how they relate to other people, just because I think, like, no man is an island, no person is a monolith. Mm-hmm. you develop in relation to other people. And so I think like one thing about Bucky, when I was talking about him and Steve sort of growing up in this sort of familiar, similar setting, is that the two of them, I think both are sort of aligned, chaotic good in the sense that like they both have a very strict moral compass, but like who knows where that compass is going today? You can kind of guess with Steve because you can base it off of him being Captain America or whatever. But with Bucky, it's like when he is Bucky, when he's not Winter Soldier, but when he's Bucky, he does have a compass and he does have an arrow that's pointing to whatever his north is. Because you can even see it in Falcon and the Winter Soldier like to the people that he knows and the people that he trusts and cares about like he's a good guy when he stops yuri from fighting with monique unique whatever that guy's name is in the alley about the trash Uh right and he like steps in to try and defuse the situation and how even though he doesn't really want to go on the date with that girl like he does it anyway because he doesn't want to disappoint her Mm -hmm. he is a good guy and i think in the same way that like steve was a good guy they both want the people in their lives to be happy it's the bucky we saw in first avenger yeah and i mean because even in like the flashback you see in winter soldier bucky wanted to care for steve after his mom's funeral not just because like steve is weak or anything but because that's what friends do that's what you do for the people you care about yeah he's almost like a brother and that behavior and that caring is still there it like never left even despite you know 70 years of brainwashing or whatever and so i think that really points to the fact that he is a good guy like just a genuinely good guy it's just all these terrible things have happened to him Mm. all right my number one steve rogers captain america played by chris evans this is going to be a long one please bear with me i'm going to start off in kind of a weird way and that may not make a whole lot of sense where i'm going but Again, bear with me, and hopefully this will make some sense. For those of you not as familiar with the history of comics, the 1980s ushered in a significant shift in tone in comics with the release of two uh, notable titles by DC Comics, Watchmen and Batman The Dark Knight Returns. Both books kind of sparked the interest in sort of much darker, grimmer, revisionist takes on superheroes, and those opinions more or less resonate in the medium to this day. The Batman book in particular was noteworthy because it kind of moved to alter our perception of Batman from the goofy character we see in the the TV series from the 60s, which was very camp, very much a product of its time, to this grim and gritty, dark, taciturn character that we know today, the Christian Bale growling and and all that. Uh, And those kind of characters became very popular and continue to be popular. For example, right now, easily 50% of DC Comics titles are Batman books. By contrast, DC's cornerstone action comics title featuring Superman is still in publication, and there are some books featuring members of the Superman family, such as Superboy, but there is at the moment not currently a Superman title in all of DC's lineup. A lot of people find Superman boring because supposedly it's hard to write good stories about a guy who only wants to do the right thing as much as possible and help people. Personally, I think that's bull. A good writer can always find ways to make 
any character interesting. And I think there have been some great, for example, Superman stories over the years that portray him as a hero with a strong moral compass and yet also demonstrate his complexity, his fears, his flaws, things like that. And that's why, <laughs> having finally gotten back around to Marvel, that is why I love Steve Rogers, Captain America. He reminds us what all people, not just Americans, all people, can be. The potential to be a force for good and for positive change. If we go back to the first Avenger, you know, why did Dr. Erskine select Steve for the super soldier serum? Because above all else, he was a good man. He was a selfless man willing to put his life on the line to save lives. He makes what appears to be the ultimate sacrifice in that movie to keep the Red Skull from you know blowing the U.S. and eventually the rest of the world to kingdom come. He wakes up after being in the ice for 70 years and he finds some newfound purpose, S.H.I.E.L.D., and the Avengers. We learn over the course of those movies what an extraordinary tactician and strategist he is, but most importantly, it's his leadership abilities that stand out. He has the utmost respect of the rest of the Avengers and all of those that he goes into battle with, although admittedly that respect is a bit begrudging on Tony's part, but it's still there. He's an inspiring figure, as is evidenced in particular by, you know, my two favorite speeches of his, The Price of Freedom is High speech from The Winter Soldier and his, uh, this is the fight of our lives speech from Endgame, which even Rocket, who is arguably the most cynical and jaded of all the MCU heroes, even he finds that one fairly rousing. Also during that time, we get to see Cap dealing with some significant challenges, most notably the pain of having, air quotes, lost Peggy Carter twice, as it were, in the span of a few movies you know, after Civil War, and then you know navigating the complex moral ambiguities of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the dark side of this new world in which he's woken up. And as a result of this conflict, we see his principles and his sense of duty tested severely in Civil War, where he chooses to do what he believes to be the right thing by not signing the Sokovia Accords, by helping Bucky elude the authorities despite the immense price that he ends up paying for doing both of those, namely the breakup of the Avengers. When Tony tells Steve in Age of Ultron that he doesn't trust anyone who doesn't have a dark side, Steve responds by telling him that maybe he just hasn't seen it yet. And I think Tony gets to see that dark side up close and personal at the end of Civil War when an enraged Cap wailing on him and nearly kills him. You know, in Infinity War, we see this significantly demoralized Steve Rogers with a much more sober reaction to the way the world has turned. When he talks to General Ross very briefly, he's like, you know, I'm not looking for forgiveness and I'm way past asking permission. But yet his mission itself is unchanged, especially once the threat of Thanos is upon them. Fight to save the Earth. That feeling eventually turns to grief, maybe even a sense of despair after the snap. We see Steve channeling his, at that point, gone friend Sam Wilson by running a support group for survivors of the snap. Nominally, we see Steve continuing to provide his usual uplifting, you know, we have to keep moving on message. But you know, the look on his face at that meeting kind of says it all. It's like a look of defeat. It's really like the only time you ever see Steve looking like that. But of course, you know, once an opportunity to turn things around, around presents itself in Endgame, we see Steve back in hero mode, you know, more determined than ever. And by the end of that film, we see him ready to face off against Thanos and his army by himself. That iconic image of him standing alone against Thanos and his army. Of course, we all know what happens. The good guys win. And Steve is ultimately rewarded, you know, not only by having saved the universe, but he gets to engage in a little self-care. <laughs> For once in his life, he puts himself first by going back in time to be with Peggy. I've said this before on the show numerous times. In 
all of comics, the two hardest roles to portray on screen are Superman and Captain America for the very reasons I've outlined. And yet Chris Evans has given us these incredible performances as Steve Rogers over the years. We get this noble, selfless hero that we would expect from Captain America. And yet he infuses the role with just the right amount of nuance. We see the doubt and the uncertainty that he experiences over the course of the films because, you know, Cap is neither a goody shoes nor a pushover. And in the end, I think we get this wonderfully realized, heroic yet complex character who gets to have this complete story arc with a beginning and a middle and an end. I just love that. I love the good guys. What can I say? What's not to get about a guy who just wants to do the right thing? What I like most about Steve is, and this is probably because this is what we've been trained to believe by like the media that we consume and the books we read and all the stories that we tell ourselves culturally is that if you're a good guy, there's no suffering, there's no hardship, there's no complexity because being good is seen as like the sort of easy thing to do, that there's never any hardship that comes with a good life or a good man or a good woman because we don't want to see that things are complex. You know, we don't want to imagine that a good person could also go through some really terrible stuff. All the media that we see, they're never sad. They never have any problems. And the problems they do have, they turn it around and they're like, turn that frown upside down and I'm happy and everything's good. But like to see a truly good character also acknowledge sometimes things just suck. You know, it is the way that you respond to it. It's the way that you react to those things that suck that makes you a good person. You know, Steve could have taken what happened in any of these movies. He could have taken what happened to Bucky. He could have taken what happened when all of his friends got put on the raft. Like he could have taken what happened after the snap and been like, all right, I'm done. It's too hard. I can't do it. What makes him a good man is that he said, this is hard. I'm going to do it. And I think that is like something that we skip over when we talk about good people is that we sort of ignore the fact that they're good because of how they deal with hard situations and not because they don't have hard situations. And that's not to say that those people also don't experience their moments of doubt. I talked about the support group scene in Endgame and then, you know, the, his conversation with Natasha at the Avengers compound afterward. It's the closest you see Steve come to giving up. And he's going through the motions and saying the, all the right things. You know, we got to keep going. That's it's, it's all we got to do. But that look on his face is just grim. You know, he, he's not sure what to do because it's kind of like, you know, we lost. I don't know how to move on. Good people go through stuff like that. And it's not easy. It's hard. It's hard to do the right thing a lot of the time. That's why Civil War is one of the most important movies in the MCU, because he defies the Sokovia Accords and helps Bucky, knowing full well this is going to get him and his friends in a boatload of trouble. And it does. <laughs> Just look at him in Infinity War. He's like a completely different person in that movie. Sometimes that's what you have to do when you're the good guy. It's like you said, people forget that. It's how you deal with the adversity that is the true demonstration of your strength and your character. So, there you have it. You have our top five MCU characters. Emily and I did prepare lists of alternates, just for kicks and giggles, in case y'all wanted to hear it. Who didn't quite make the cut for you? I actually, so I told you earlier I had five, but I added one more while we were talking. <clears throat> All right, who's uh, on your list of honorable mentions? Okoye, M'Baku, Loki, Mobius. Because oh. I just can't not. That was such a good show. <laughs> Sarah Wilson, Sam's sister. Okay. And Morgan Stark. Excellent. You got all, yeah, you've really covered the, the TV shows quite a bit. But here, I had a lot more honorable mentions than Emily did, but I'm just going to go through them real quick. Peggy Carter, Sam Wilson, Helmut Zemo, especially now that we've seen more of him in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Scott Lang, and sort of kind of by default, Luis. <laughs> See our Ant-Man review for more on that. Sif and the Warriors 3 from the Thor movies. Ned from the Spider-Man movies, Loki, of course, 
Wanda Maximoff, especially in light of Elizabeth Olsen's incredible performance in WandaVision, Natasha Romanoff, Clint Barton, Quentin Beck from Spider-Man Far From Home, and I'm going to throw one in here as this is sort of kind of a cheat. It was questionable as to whether or not this was actually MCU canon before, and now it sort of sounds like it's not going to be, although you know there's all sorts of rumors about rebooting him. I'm going to say Matt Murdock from Daredevil on the Netflix shows. I love Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock. They're all sorts of rumors that we might see him in Spider-Man uh, No Way Home as Peter Parker's attorney. No word of any of that is even close to being true, although I kind of hope it is because I love Charlie Cox in that role. So I put that on there as a, as a bit of a cheat. So there you have it, everyone, our top five MCU characters. Thank you for that, Emily. I thought that was really fun, really insightful. That was kind of a deep discussion, deeper than usual, and I appreciate that. So the next thing in our lineup was originally going to be our review of Black Panther, for which Cherokee will be joining us for that. But, you know, Emily and I sat back and thought we were debating whether or not it would be too soon to do this because we we weren't sure how many people would have seen the movie but since we just reviewed civil war it just kind of made sense to do it and so we've decided our next episode three weeks from now will be our review of black widow starring scarlett johansson and florence Pugh, of whom we've spoken quite a bit during this podcast so you've uh, so got three weeks to get Disney Plus and then pay for premium access. Or go see it in the theater if and it's still the there, if you so dare. It will be a spoilerific review. You know how we do these. We go through the whole plot, so we are leaving no stone unturned. Thank you all so much for listening. We wish you a pleasant evening. And like I said, we look forward to seeing you in a few weeks with Black Widow. So until then, take care of yourselves. Be safe. Bye-bye. Have a good night. <laughs>